Welcome to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, the first podcast to focus on the political side of pharmacy. Here's your host, Eric Geyer. Welcome, Political Pharmacist Podcast listeners. I'm your host, Eric Geyer, and I've got two guests tonight, which is a little bit of a changeup for me. My first guest is Stephanie Itabru. She is a high school English teacher uh, around me up here in Medina, Ohio and is also a friend of mine who I met through running experiences, but is also passionate about educating kids. She is affiliated with multiple different level teachers unions, but specifically the one she works a lot with was the Ohio Education Association and sits on uh, several different committees with them. Uh, Teacher Itabru, thanks for coming on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. Hey, so the reason I wanted you on here to talk about this American Frontline Doctors thing is one of the things that they said right off the bat, and why I wanted you in the first part of this podcast, was that kids should go back to school. And I kind of wanted, like, what your initial response was to that, and then we'll get in a few more of the specifics. So can you elaborate what your initial response was to that? I absolutely can. First of all, I want to say that there is not one teacher, not one teacher that I know that does not wish down in his or her heart that we can go back to school the way it was in 2019. That's what we want, right? We all want to go back and we want to have our kids in our room and I want to high five my kids every day at the door. And I want to be able to clap them on the shoulders when they do something right. And I want to be able to lend them my pencils that they'll never return. (laughs) And I want to have group work and I want to have kids who are wrestling in the room that I have to yell at and say, stop touching each other. We all want that. There is not one teacher I know that does not want that. Here's the reality. That's gone. It's off the table. It's off the menu. It will never happen again. So the reality is we have to think about how do we keep students and teachers alive? And that is a very dramatic difference from what we are used to. And the, and the reality and the changing science that we see shows us that it is not possible to bring students back into the classroom and give them the experience that they need to have a quality education it, and, and keep them alive. It, so I am of the opinion that if I get to see my students online and I get to deal with their educational issues and their socio-emotional issues and it's only online, I will take that because I want to see them alive. And by the way, I would like to be alive with my family too. Yeah, and that's, that is a big issue with teachers because there are a lot of teachers who are over 50 or have comorbidities or other diseases that put them at high risk. Uh, the first doctor, I believe, who stepped up to the mic, or maybe it was the second, on the Frontline Doctors video, uh, his name was Bob Hamilton. He was a pediatrician. <laughs> I think it was a pediatrician, he said, from Santa Monica, California. And one of the things that he quoted was, we can go back to school, it's safe. The mortality rate for kids is only a fifth of 1%. So 0.2%. And I did the math before coming on this. If there's roughly 50 million school-age kids, like high school to kindergarten, that means that roughly 100,000 kids would die. And what, oh what does that bring to you right away? The first thing that brings to me, and by the way, I did do this math um, online in a focused school group in my district. That brings us to 10 students at my high school. And, and wow. let me say this, there are most years that my school, high school has 2,600 kids and most years there is a student who we lose due to, usually due to drunk driving or car accidents. And it is the most devastating thing for the whole school to go through. Yeah. To, for me to think to lose t- 
10 children at my school alone when we could have prevented that is devastating. I think it's callous and unprofessional to even throw away that sort of number and say that those students can go. Yeah. And actually, now that I'm looking at it, it might have been Dr. Mark Woolhouse. There were so many. I was trying to take notes. I was going through the video who said it. Um, but uh, Dr. Mark Woolhouse did also say that there was zero chance of student-to-teacher transmissions, which we now know is definitely not the case. It can be passed. It might be much, much lower, but that is a huge risk factor for the teachers. And obviously, if a teacher gets sick, now we're talking about bringing substitute teachers in. And how many substitute teachers do we think are going to come in if they know people in the classroom are get, or students in the classroom are getting them sick? It just ends up in this vicious cycle. Kind of some of the stuff that, and the reason I wanted you on here too, is he was saying teachers unions are the problems because they're going to demand money and they want us to defund the police and close charter schools. None of which I've heard you say, and you share a lot about this on social media. You're very tied in and plugged into the powers that be with some of these teachers union. So I thought this was a good chance for you to kind of share that side. You even mentioned like tolerating this disease, if you will, and kind of some of the things that are mentioned with that and the illnesses and that are, are related to it. Can you elaborate on some of the things that you were reading about and that you obviously we've been talking about back and forth to what tolerating means and kind of some of those other um, studies and things like that? Sure. Um, one thing is that when the um, AAP was at the American Association of Pediatricians, am I saying that right? Um, so, yeah. When they came out with their statement initially, um, they said that the best thing for children was to go back to school. But what they didn't take into account was how that affects everybody else. They also took, um, as their study for proof, they took, um, and I had to, and I have to admit, I waited through this. You gave me the document, and I waited through it, and it was very tedious for me because I'm an English teacher. I don't like this stuff. Especially um, science so I, journals. I went through, and I was, oh, my God, science journals are terrible. And I realized <laughs> that they were looking at a study of 40 children in South Korea who had already done their job in um, sort of, you know, curtailing a lot of the, the problems with the virus within their community. And I thought then they, they admittedly in the study said they projected it. They did a computer projection of the study to generalize, generalize it to the whole population of the United States. Now, even I know, and I'm not a math person, even <laughs> I know that that's ridiculous. So the first thing I thought was, AAP, what are you doing? And then immediately what I noticed was there was a reaction there of people saying, really? Because when I have to go to the doctor's office, I have to wait in my car until they call me in and I wear a mask and one person goes in at a time. The reality is that teachers will be crowded into a classroom with 30 plus students, some who will be masked and some who won't, and don't fit into this study at all. And then what we're seeing right now is these things, the camp um, in what was Georgia? What state was that in Pennsylvania? Georgia, yeah, yeah. the camp in Georgia, 200 kids. Um, <laughs> just Indiana, day one of Indiana at a middle school, the whole, the whole place gets infected because day one, someone ha- shows up with coronavirus. One thing that I know is that on any best day in a high school, and our high school is luckier than most, we have 2,600 kids, we have a 90 success rate in getting subs for an average day when teachers are gone. So imagine that I get exposed on day one and I have to self-quarantine for 12 days. So now I need a sub for 12 days. And that student that exposed, that, that had coronavirus, 
also had seven other classes and exposed seven other teachers and three paraprofessionals, five lunch ladies, and 200 other kids. What happens to our high school of 2,600? We have to shut down. So why are we even talking about this when we could have a quality education online right from the get-go until we can contain this? Yeah, and and I think the the crazy part of that is you just threw some numbers out there that are really eye-opening. I didn't even think about leading up this podcast, the fact that if you were in high school, which we now know that those teenage years, you can basically spread it like an adult, that you know, sure. if you had seven different teachers, it's not just, I was thinking more of the little kids, like when you're in first grade, second grade, you have one teacher all day. You still have to figure out how to use the bathroom right. safely. But in high school, you're right, seven teachers, you're walking through the hallways. How do you, how does that work? How do bathroom breaks go? Like everyone's got to use the bathroom exactly. probably once during the school day. Try cafeteria. Do you yeah. know we have an average of 400 kids in each of our lunches? Our lunches start at 10 o'clock and they finish at 1.30. So we have four different lunches with it, about 400 kids in every lunch. So you can't space six feet out from that, and you're going to infect kids because, by the way, they're not wearing masks in the cafeteria, and they're very loud. <laughs> yeah, kids definitely can get loud. Yeah, I think those are all some great points. Um, there were some other things you mentioned, too, about PPE and some of the other logistics in there that wouldn't like obviously kids aren't going to be able to wear masks when eating teachers aren't either how do you see do you see any possible way that that could work because let's admit it we all want to be back in school for the economy reasons there's like secondary but two for our kids and you know three it's the right thing to do we got to try and take care of ourselves as a society but do you see any possible way that this could work at all or is you just think that this is there's no possible way given the the ppe shortages and other things like that that we've seen well, I'm actually on a committee to try and see how that works. So here's the solution. So I teach, let's take one of my subjects. I teach 10th grade English. In a regular 10th grade English class, I'll have 30 students in my classroom. Um, the health department says we have to maintain a six-foot distance and wear masks. So what the school does is our school is saying, well, we're actually going to do three feet with masks. But you know where they're going to measure? From the middle of the desk out. But, okay, let's say we actually conform to what the health guidelines are. So that means I can have 10 kids in my classroom now. If I move all my furniture out, all my bookshelves, my own desk, let's move it out. We'll have 10 kids. So now I have 20 more kids that I have to house and teach. So what if I took the adjacent classrooms? So I take two classrooms next to me. I put a swivel camera on me. And then in the other classrooms, there's a smart board and the kids get to see my lesson. Um, who's going to watch those kids? Now we have to hire paraprofessionals to watch them, right? So that I could rotate between classrooms and teach my lesson for 30 kids. Except guess what? In my district alone, Governor DeWine cut a million and five before September with the promise of cutting more. So how are we going to hire paraprofessionals? We can't afford substitute teachers. We can't afford, I put in a, um, a request for PPE. Um, I asked for plexiglass so that my students could do group work and I could put it between four desks because my whole class is devoted to group work. And I was told that's not going to happen. There's no way that we could ever do that, and it will not happen. We don't have the money. So what do we do if I can't, if 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 we can't even accommodate students safely just sitting there? How are we going to bring them in? Yeah, and you know I appreciate your thoughts on this. Um, I'm going to kind of wrap this up here a little bit with you. I just wanted to get a teacher's point of that because as a pharmacist, I can look at the numbers all day, but you know. 
when I see 0.2%, some people might think, oh, that's not much. But when you look at it in your context of one high school, it's a larger high school, but that would lose 10 students in just one year from coronavirus. That's that that's crazy. And I didn't realize that. And I know right where your high school is. I grew up right by it and I have family who live there. So to me, that kind of hits close to home. Mm-hmm. I grew up in a smaller high school and I think we lost, I don't think we lost anybody when I was in high school, but you know, I'm sure I know if anyone even got a speeding ticket, we knew about it and it was big news. So I couldn't imagine what would happen if someone were to pass away from this, let alone two, three, ten kids. So, uh, Stephanie, thank you for sharing your side as a teacher and kind of what you're seeing on the inside of this from trying to like logistically get us back to school. I appreciate your thoughts on that. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks for asking. I hope more people can suddenly think about what the numbers look like. I think that's going to help all of us in the long run. Awesome. Well, hey, thanks again. And I'm going to move on to my second guest here. And my second guest today is Dr. Neil Smoller. He's a holistic pharmacist and founder of Supplement School and owner of Woodstock Vitamins and Village Apothecary. He calls himself a supplement strategist and graduated from the Albany College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences. Now, uh, Dr. Smoller, I wanted you on today because you kind of deal in this world of where some of these doctors were talking about these supplements and these like other other kind of weird studies. Can you elaborate on kind of what you do a little bit? Yeah, so... So thank you. Uh, I'm a supplement strategist. So I I help people get clarity and quality and the results with supplements that the wellness industry promises, but doesn't deliver, you know, and like you said, like, this is my world. My world is actually not just supplements. It's pseudoscience (laughs) because, because I'm in the wellness industry. Right. So for the past 10 years, I've had like tens of thousands of conversations about alternative medicine and some of the weirder stuff that goes on, right? So fake news might be news to politics, but the supplement industry is literally built on fake news, right? And so in my opinion, this America's frontline doctors, it's not new. It's, it's, the, it's the same thing to me as the charlatans that tell people that osteoporosis medicines are bad and how Lyme disease is treated with like 30 herbs and coconut fat, <laughs> right? So, so what, what I realized is that if I wanted to help people using supplements, I have two options, right? I can be okay with the pseudoscience myself and engage with it like they all did, which I believe is contrary to our education and training, right? Or I can bring supplements into my world and then raise the bar on the quality of the products and the discourse. So I think, you know, what I'm doing on this, talking about this crazy, crazy video, <laughs> is, is that our role here is to not only engage with this like insane stuff, but embrace it empathetically, right? Yeah. And, and we, wanna, we wanna lead the charge and we wanna change the paradigm for people because COVID is wellness. Misinformation is wellness. Being able to deal with people's apprehensions and fears that lead them to these types of videos is an important part of being a good wellness practitioner. So, yeah. And I think you hit, you hit the nail on the head and looking at it from a pharmacist education with a slightly different lens. A lot of times when, as we dive into this here, a lot of pharmacists just go, Nope, randomized controls trials. We have to have them or there's nothing to it. And I'm, I'm still right. kind of in that camp, to be honest with you. That's just how mm-hmm. my brain works. I'm mm-hmm. a very factual person. Anyone who has worked with me knows that. Um, yeah. and, and I think there is some value in that, especially when you're talking about you know placebo-controlled trials. But I would like yep. the fact that obviously you will kind of hop in the mud with some of the stuff a little bit and like study oh, yeah. and focus on it. So, so with yeah. that, the one uh, 
the first prescriber we're going to talk about, or the first uh, doctor who was in this American quote unquote frontline doctors was Dr. Stella Emanuel. Um, mm-hmm. She is kind of the one who's, I guess, the celebrity out of this video, if you will. Yeah, she's like my spirit animal. <laughs> um, I had a lot of people who I know in Houston who were commenting like, "Oh God, it's the it's her." You know, it's I can't believe it's this woman. Um, well, that's what I was gonna say. Is like I've got a lot of friend Texan pharmacists now, especially with supplement school and getting to meet people across the country. And like, what's up with your medical board? Like, you just give everybody licenses? Like, what's going on here? <laughs> yeah. So obviously, she kind of promoted the the hydroxychloroquine, which, as we've seen from studies, probably does not help. Um, the only really, probably, yeah. Like, why are we even talking about this? <laughs> <laughs> like, why is this coming up? You know what I'm saying? Like, like the the like your part of me didn't want to to do this with you. To be honest, with you, not with you because you're a good good dude, right? But it's just like. How many times do we have to convince people that the world isn't flat, right? Yeah. Why do we have to debunk this stuff? You know, the, the, the motivating factor to come on and talk about this hydroxychloroquine stuff and, and what she's saying is because we have fellow pharmacists yep. that are looking at the same papers that we are, listening to the same people who are way smarter than all of us, and we're still fighting for a drug like we're freaking soccer fans in Europe, right? And we, we and we're like arguing for our team, right? Yeah. So, so go ahead. You're on the same page with me, obviously. We both believe hydroxychloroquine does not work for many of the studies, yeah. and she is saying she's adamant that she's treated. I think it was 350, 250 patients with it, and they've all recovered, no issues. Um, she's also used it with Zithromax and zinc. Can yeah. you kind of elaborate a little bit on what zinc's role is and why all of a sudden, like with these two prescription meds, zinc is like the catalyst that like inhibits DNA polymerase or whatever to make this all work? Well, yeah. So, so first off, the idea that she treated 300 patients, this is so hydroxychloroquine um, in COVID is vitamin C for me in COVID <laughs> just because you say you treat your patients with it doesn't mean anything. Put your money where your mouth is, do a stupid study and prove it to us just like everybody else has to, because otherwise you're just talking smack, right? So the idea here is that zinc helps our immune cells, right? The idea that vitamin C is chomped up by our immune cells and it's, it's a very important component of our immune response, right? So the hydroxychloroquine uh, is helping the zinc get into the cells is what they're promoting. Okay. That's, that's what it's there for. And now, so I'll make arguments about zinc because, because part of my education in supplement school is to teach people that there is a problem, obviously, with the supplement industry and the quality of the, uh, the products themselves. They're dangerous. They're not what they say they are. But then there's the problem with the therapeutics and the advice, as you kind of talked about. It's like, all right, so I, I'm okay. I'm, I'm more liberal with the data. I want to use the best available data that we have. And sometimes it's this big trial. Sometimes it's little stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So, so when it comes to this problem, we can talk academically about zinc all day, but are they even taking a freaking zinc product that will get absorbed into the blood, right? That's so very is valid. It, is it zinc sulfate, zinc oxide, zinc chelate? What, what is it? And what's the bioavailability of the thing? So even, you know, there's there's people that talk all day about oh i need i need magnesium for my muscles i need magnesium for whatever reason and they're taking magnesium oxide five percent bioavailability right so it's staying in the gut it's just irritating them right so 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 her her whole approach and and like this idea of this cocktail right from a science standpoint it's 
at the so it would have been fine if we did this episode in March, right? Mm -hmm. And we had no no idea, yeah, right? We have right. no idea. It's, it sounds good, and and this is an important kind of point for practitioners is that lay people believe that the logical story that's being told is good enough. They don't understand all the flukes in medicine and how all the the when the rubber meets the road, how how complicated it gets. So we really have to kind of be empathetic to that, that even though logically it progresses, we need the data to support that information. So so that's a long way of me to say uh, zinc is really just part of this trifecta that has no data. So Yeah, and that's kind of what I thought about it too, in fact. And the crazy thing is, I know this has been going on the whole pandemic with zinc and vitamin C, but since yeah. this video came out last week now at this point, maybe a week and a half ago, um, I've had more and more people come in the store looking for zinc and we're sold out. And I'm like, right. Hey, look, you can take it if you want. It's not going to make a world of difference. Like unless, you know, you're well, just zinc depleted. I, I, I'd argue with that. So, and, and so this is, this is actually my thesis, right? I say to people all the time is like, do you want to sell supplements or do you want to be a regional expert in like true holistic care? Those are two very different things, right? So for yep. example, CBD is this great trend and people ask me, well, do you sell CBD? And I say, no, I have a number of products and advice that meet my standards for quality and therapeutics. And yes, CBD is one of them. So when CBD trend came, I was on the forefront and the local doctors knew that they could trust that if this actually works, Neil's got this good product, right? Which is a lot different than saying I sell whatever is trendy and I want people to have it, right? So then, then the next trend comes, which is COVID. <laughs> and there are stores that are lining them, their shelves with vitamin C, vitamin A, uh, uh, immune boosting products, elderberry, right? All yep. of that stuff. And then they're shoveling it out the door. So what happens to your integrity? If you're just jumping from trend to trend to trend without having any rigor or standards. And so I would argue that, no, it's not good for people to take more than 30 milligrams of zinc because zinc can act as a hormone disruptor at those levels. Yep. I right? actually, I actually I, told people that too. I'm like, Hey, look, zinc yeah. is still a metal, like putting that in your body. It can have other, other issues that it's not going to like have no side effects if you're taking tons of it to try and prevent COVID. Right. That that's exactly right. And my um like my like slam my head against the wall moment was um <laughs> so we're we're in woodstock new york so um famous most famous small town in the world and all of these uh tourists come from new york city we have a lot of uh, city folk famous folk the whole thing right and so a gentleman comes into my store right when this is breaking and he wants to buy all of my zinc lozenges and i'm not even joking like and we stock at any given time probably 36 bottles of zinc lozenges because it's such a high seller for us mm -hmm. And he wanted all of it. And I said, sir, if you start taking zinc lozenges and dissolving them on the back of your throat, you're not going to be able to taste or maybe even smell anything. And that's know? one of the main things and with COVID. So who knows then if it's a symptom or a side effect? <laughs> right, exactly. So so this is this is a very dangerous thing. And this is actually, I'm kind of pissed at US pharmacists. They wrote an article that was like, what can pharmacists do for supplements? And 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 like they listed vitamin C and zinc and stuff like that. No, no, that's not what we want to do. Like we want to use the best data, especially with COVID. And and my so you were saying so like you're a little bit liberal with the data, right? So I'm definitely liberal with the data. I, I as as long as it's reasonably good, and if there's something new that comes out, we'll change, of course. But but COVID is so new and so dangerous. We're not looking once; we're looking twice, right? Yeah. And we want to make sure that we really know. And there was this whole whole stuff that came up about elderberry early, 
uh, about how elderberry may induce like a cytokine storm reaction and it's not good. And again, that that herbalist that I was talking about was kind of spitballing. But it, what I told people is like, yeah, you don't if you get COVID, stop taking your supplements because we have no idea how everything. Yep. Right. We didn't know about Advil. We didn't know about ACE inhibitors. Oh, yeah. Know? So. And and kind of going back a little bit to the Stella Manual thing here, mm-hmm. I thought this was funny. And talking about pseudoscience, she actually mm-hmm. admitted in this that she, was one. She said she put everyone on it, including herself. Which I don't know Texas law, but in Ohio, you're not allowed to self-prescribe. In my state, I don't. I think it's the same in New York where you work, but I'm not positive. You can do it, yeah. Okay. As long as it's, you know, as long as it's cool. You yeah. Know, you can't can't be can't be doing your opioids. And, yeah. So in, in Ohio, our uh, attorney general is actually looking to. Um, go after a lot of the people who are self-prescribing and prescribing for their families to hoard the medication. So I thought that was interesting that she basically admitted something like that uh, in Texas. And she also admits that she wears a mask, although she wasn't in the video, which I thought was funny because a lot of people I know who say that we don't need masks and this is all some big conspiracy thing are the same people now saying, we need hydroxychloroquine. It's our right. And I'm going, well, wait a minute, which, which is it here? Yeah. You gotta, you gotta pick one. So, and, and, (laughs) So it is very interesting to me. And again, so my my perspective on this is that that this speaks to a deeper problem. Uh, And the way that I've addressed it with people is that the people that are engaging with this stuff that so you have, you know, on on the one side, you have just the people that are going to believe conspiracy stuff. And then in the middle, you have people that are susceptible to this misinformation. Right. Yeah. And so I I believe that, uh, you know, we have to figure out why these people are engaging with these kinds of things and why the hypocrisy. And like, so I've got some, some tips for that. We'll talk about before I get off the the air, but like her clinic is in a strip mall, right? It's got maybe a couple beds, right? Richie Waith, right? So he's got RX radio, right? Podcast. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure you guys have like, uh, you've introduced him on your show, right? So, so the, he said that they look like they bought their, their lab coats from party city, you know, like they you, can, you, <laughs> you can put a, a lab coat on in front of a camera, call yourself a doctor and, and do that appeal to authority, but logical fallacy that I'm sure that will come up in your next conversation or your other conversation. But you know, it, it's to me, it's, it's crazy. And we haven't even talked about the idea that this person believes in, in the astral invasion of aliens you know, in your dreams. And that's what causes women's health disorders, right? Yeah. The, the, there's also the demon semen, the alien DNA and all these other things that you're like, wait, what? Right. So, so, you know, you, I, I use an uh, analogy and this is what I, 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 again, how do we help our patients better deal with this stuff? And what I say is it's moldy bread. When somebody says, Oh, did you watch the video? I'm like, no, it's moldy bread. Right. So when I look at this, I see, you know, a customer might see a piece of bread and they might see like a little couple spots of mold, but they're like, you know what, I'm going to scrape out those little chunks of mold and I'm going to eat the bread because the bread is bread. I I mean, I I like it. It makes me feel good. And I look at it and I just see like this just crusted over gross green chunk of, of bread. Right. And, and so it's about training them to, to start to look at this as for, for what it really is. Right. And like how to kind of, uh, sort through all of this nonsense. The it, it's to me, it's people will reach for the furthest straws, and they're going to question you and I, but then give these crazies no examination. Right? Yeah, exactly. Like just at the superficial level, I look at it, I see a piece of moldy bread. 
And they're like, yum. <laughs> you know, and, and to continue on that before we go on here a little bit more, the moldy bread analogy really works because a lot of times if you see mold on bread, it's too late. And also if you look at a loaf of <laughs> yeah. bread that has mold on it, usually there's one piece that is like rotting the whole thing. And right. this is like the case of these frontline doctors. We have, they're like the moldiest piece of bread, if you will. And they're just right. poisoning it for everybody else. And everyone else is just following mm-hmm. them and con- con- contracting the mold. So I thought, right. I think that's a really good analogy. Uh, doc, yeah, I doc, think. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I was just, I think it's important that we get analogies in our toolbox so that way we can help people with this. Yeah. And I really like that one. Um, other things Dr. Emanuel said, um, that was actually in this video instead of her other crazy theories. Um, she said there was a 2005 NIH study on hydroxychloroquine and COVID-19, which Mm -hmm. was not, it was actually chloroquine and it was the original SARS or SARS one. So different disease, different drug, which we all know that matters when it comes to treating stuff. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I just yesterday spent, uh, so I, I was drunk at a little barbecue with my sister-in-law cause she's been behaving herself and I've been, we've been behaving ourselves. So I'm hammered. I'm checking my Instagram feed for a post update and I see something and it's somebody pointing to a piece of data saying that, um, flu vaccination increases risk of COVID in children. Right. And so, and so I just responded, you're a moron. Right? <laughs> like I didn't even bother because like it took me three minutes hammered to go to that link and find out that it was a response to an editorial. And then the, the actual linked study was the most piss poor study on the planet. And so if a healthcare practitioner has the inability to read the data that is out there, if, and, and to stand and then, then skew it and obviously build, uh, this, this narrative around the bad data that should throw everything to the wind. There should be no, trust in that person and and you know you've seen me call people out on facebook like (laughs) this this is this is horrible that it's the most insulting thing to not only our profession like i don't even call these people colleagues anymore right because i'm in the i'm in the supplement industry right so i'm not colleagues with these charlatans that are saying all this not so stuff about like yeast infections in your blood that aren't real right i'm not (laughs) colleagues with those people so why would i be colleagues to a a pharmacist who's just like abjectly lying about a a drug for political points and so let's kind of dig into this a couple things well one thing i wanted to just address is like you so you were talking about like your your people that believe that masks don't work but hydroxychloroquine does and I, i i take it to a different level i say listen like what about the real conspiracies that are going on here that are in plain sight? What, what, where's your silence on that? Right. So, mm-hmm. so again, like political news story broke two days ago, the white house halted national testing initiatives early on because they said blue states were being affected. Right. Yeah. We've seen some definite um, political bias stuff and money, on. money right. stuff going on with just the testing and where money and funds are being moved, which is right. I mean, there, what, I don't care what you are. It's your human life. Yeah. The all, what about all the Congress people that sold off their stocks before all of this happened? Oh, Jeffrey yeah. Epstein didn't kill himself. I mean, come on. Let's go here, <laughs> people. There's real conspiracies that we have to deal with. And we're arguing about masks and drugs, even though the mask science is greater and the, and the hydroxychloroquine science has been pretty much refined. And, and so it's very interesting if you really think about this, the... The idea here is that I believe that this video is a, a specific disinformation campaign. I don't even believe that the people who made it made it with any intent to get hydroxychloroquine 
prescribed for people, right? That's, that's what I believe. Uh, the conspiracy that I believe is that it is impossible to get the number of views and the number of engagement and likes and shares in the amount of time that the, the video was released. It was something like five times the pandemic video and it was only out for hours versus days, right? <laughs> well, and, and, and because in, in social media world, like you, so if you write a blog post, right? So I've, I, I, my blog posts, a couple thousand people read them in 24 hours, right? So how does, how did it, how does that happen? That, that doesn't ha I don't just write the blog post and then 2000 people see it. I have to promote it and, and get it out there. So I yeah. feel like this is a specific, there's the only way to get it to millions of views, which also is social proof that it is something valid, right? Supposedly. Is to, yeah. Is to, well, that's, that's what people believe is to kind of push and promote this stuff uh, intentionally. So, yeah. And the interesting thing there too, is it's the anger and the frustration that we all feel right from COVID mm -hmm. and being locked up and having to, you know, even, I mean, I don't like having to wear a mask everywhere I go. I'm not like a fan of it, but you know, at the mm -hmm. same time I do it because I know what's right. And it playing mm -hmm. off that anger. And I think the key thing to, to really recognize here is, you know, trust your sources as we're talking about trusting sources when it comes to prescribers and pharmacists and char right. charlatans, like you're saying, this came out on Breitbart which Breitbart is of course. It's not as far right as you can go, but it's pretty right. darn far right. They've been, they've definitely had disinformation, fake information on there before to push certain agendas. And I think that's one of the biggest things that you have to look at is when I see something from Breitbart that's only coming out of Breitbart, it's not coming out of AP, NPR, you know, NBC, whatever spectrum you want to look at this, right? If it's only on Breitbart, I'm going, oh, wait a minute. This, has, this has some credibility issues. Right. right. And so this, this also speaks to you and I with... Uh, critical thinking skills developed and honed through medical training, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and that's why it's so insulting when these people kind of like veer off and, and support this kind of stuff. But, you know, th there's two two bigger points here. So people are totally cool wandering into conversations cold and then editorializing on it yeah. without any understanding of the argument, the context, underlying structure, anything like that. Right. I, I always say and, they, I always say they play the pigeon. They're like playing chess with a pigeon, right? You pigeon, can be, exactly. You, That's you can be I the grand master, business. but no matter <laughs> you're playing a pigeon and they walk around and just crap over the board and act like they won. And you're like, no, yeah. that's not how you play the game. <laughs> right. So, so it doesn't matter. The source to them is because they're so used to coming at things cold. To be honest with you, I believe that's why Donald Trump strikes such a, um, a chord with some people is because the way that discourse has changed in our country, he's literally an embodiment of those people. He goes in cold like you can watch him read a speech and then for the first time and then be like, oh, yeah, I get that. And I like that. And then he starts to rip, you know. Mm -hmm. And so so there's that. And then the second part is that changing your mind is seen as a weakness. And this is important for the mask conversation, right? So your friends that are like anti-mask, at the beginning, I was anti-mask. I told my patients, don't buy those stupid masks because you need to buy an N95 and you don't know how to wear it right. So it's not gonna protect you from anything right. because we didn't have the data at the time to show that this is actually gonna be prevented by by not spreading the disease, right? Versus getting you you're getting yourself sick, right? So, so we have this belief that we have to be resolute in our ideals, right? And I don't know how old you are, Eric, but like um, when Bush was running for president and stuff yeah. like that, he, he, the idea of like being a flipper flopper is what he said, right? I don't want to be a flipper flopper. <laughs> and, and, and like, and so I was like, well, first indecisive is the word. And, and yeah, we want, I want a president that gets good information. I want a, a pharmacist. I want a doctor. I want a friend that gets new information and then be dynamic with their beliefs based on the best information as that information improves. 
right? Yeah. And so, so those are, are the fatal flaws that we deal with with our patients. Our patients are of those two mindsets. Like we have to be resolute and, and, the, and the change is a weakness. And like we don't we can just rip. Right. And so we don't want that from them. So and you were talking about like how they distrust the, the system. I agree. I'm with them. Right. And and like that. So they, they hate pharma. Right. So in part of the reason I call myself a holistic pharmacist is to be disarming to people yeah. because they see the white coat. They see the pharmacist and like, oh, he he hates supplements, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and he's part of pharma. Right. They hate big pharma. Right. And so the, they hate the pharmaceutical industry. I think it comes from three spots. It comes from like the pharmacy industry corruption, which you and I know is real, right? Yep. So the, the hid the safety data on Vioxx, right? And like generics are bad because the Synthroid manufacturer freaking like fudged the data, right? Mm-hmm. We, have, we have the pharma greed, right? In, in the face of our healthcare problems, insulin is $700, EpiPen is 600 bucks, right? And, yeah. and, and people are like, dude, I want medicine like why are you being so greedy and then i think the third reason that we distrust the system so much is because of the wellness industry yeah they're constantly reinforcing the idea that pharma is bad and natural is the alternative and and like the advice and the products are going to be better than so i spend my time teaching people about the dichotomy right so dichotomies are simpler than nuance right so this idea that mass data is changing or hydroxychloroquine yeah it was a good option at the beginning but now it's not you know people pharma good bad supplements good right (laughs) like in nutrition it's like good fats and bad fats right it's not that simple and part of the interesting thing was when you say that so i'm like you i'm always trying to be hypercritical of stuff and i remember when i was on rotations um prasagrel was like the new study drug that was coming out and mm-hmm. they did this huge worldwide study. I mean, like this thing had the power, like you wouldn't believe. I forget how many thousands or whatever, millions of patients years it had on the study across the whole world. But when you looked at it, they basically found it was no different than clopidogrel. But when right. they published the study, which was obviously funded in behind the, either behind the scenes or through um, a school by the drug manufacturer who is escaping me at the time. They then mm-hmm. dove into their results and basically found a subset of like diabetics between this age and this age. It works great in. And I'm mm-hmm. like, okay, well, that gives like that's wasn't what your original goal was. That still has some right. validity. Maybe we need to revalidate that. But at the same point, like there's also a four time higher rate of major bleeding occurrences and spontaneous death. But now it's right. not it's not very high. It's not like it was fifty percent. I mean, you're talking like you know one percent versus like a quarter of a percent or something very small like that. But I was like, well, that's enough that you know, hey, if I can use this drug and it's that much safer, I'm going to use that. But right. you know, that's some of the studies that we see. And I was hypercritical of it at a major hospital institution, and now you don't see it anymore, even though they were saying that this could be the next wonder drug. To right. your point, now right. th- there is a point where Dr. Emanuel in here calls. She says all of pharma is fake. We don't need studies, randomized <laughs> controlled trials. And you know, <laughs> since you brought it up earlier, all I have to say is tell that to a kid who's got a peanut allergy with an EpiPen, because I'm pretty sure that that EpiPen is like his lifeline when he needs it. Now, if it's right. expired or whatever, he it was kept improperly. That's a whole different story. But you know, <laughs> EpiPens freaking work. Like I don't know what to tell you about that. Like, and and doesn't and, she wear glasses? <laughs> I, you know, I don't know. I don't think she, I, I could be wrong. I thought she had glasses on in one of the things. Like, she might have. Yeah. I mean, so again, big, big honk and chunk of moldy breath, right? Yeah. So, so why, why do people find value in this stuff so much, right? So much so that they're going to use their social credits 
to post it and share it, right? Because we only have we only have so many friends on Facebook, and if you haven't lost them all after the last election, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, like you only have so much credibility to go around it. So you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna. So why is that? And again, it's it's from this distrust of the system, which I totally understand. And you're pointing out, you know, again, the media is constantly putting in articles that talk about how pharma is bad, right? And then. And so, so what I teach people is that because, because essentially what, what, the, where this is headed, this, this fits into the mindset of people that engage more with supplements than drugs. Right. And this, this, this all feeds that mentality of a distrust in the system, right? That's what it's doing. So I teach people that pharma isn't the devil and the wellness industry isn't an angel. They're both jerks, right? So I have a graphic on my website, the 14 mega corporations that own your supplement brands. And that's mind blowing for people. The fact that Pfizer and like Clorox owns most of the supplement brands yeah. that are on the market. Pharma is the main raw material supplier for most isolated micronutrients, right? And, and you know, we're talking about vitamin C. I, I would say all the time, what's natural about vitamin C? It comes from China as 90% <laughs> of it, right? From GMO corn, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a chemical compound at seven times the RDA, it's a pharmaceutical dose of an isolated chemical in these gross chalky tablets. What's natural about that, right? Yeah. So, so our, our patients, the, the people that we are trying to help are stuck in a mindset that's been fed to them and reinforced by the media. And then this stuff during a pandemic, when everybody's already afraid and, and nervous and all of the emotional stuff, it's just not good. And then it just keeps reinforcing the same uh, dialogue, which again, it's a distrust in the system, which we can, you and I can relate to. And so I, that's why I say empathetic approach is the best approach here. Yeah. I, and I, I get that too. And I'll be honest, I'm the first person that sometimes when I see people post stuff, whether it be on social media or say stuff, and then I know it's not right. My first thing is like, Oh, come on, shut up. Like, get out of here yeah. with that. Like, you don't know what you're yeah, talking about. Exactly. And I, I'm not the most empathetic person. It's definitely something I have to work on, but I think that's a huge, right. A huge key here is when you're talking about that because yeah. you definitely want to appreciate the fact that they might have read something that was very convincing. Right. Now, I need to, I don't want to say I need to be more convincing, but I need to present you the information that I know to be true and let right. them I, – I, I hate saying let people make their decisions because as we've seen with some of this, we, they don't always make the best decision. But I need to educate them so that they can make the right decision essentially. Yeah, and so – because it, it, it's it's it stinks. It, it really stinks because the reason that pharmacists and doctors aren't involved in supplements is because and aren't trusted for supplements or or, or or we'll say alternative or like holistic advice. The reason that pharmacists even poo poo the idea of holistic in general is because of this. We we have these high standards and we've just been dismissive instead of empathetic. What is it that somebody's really trying to say when they say that they don't want to take a drug? Mm -hmm. Is that they're saying that you know they don't want side effects, they don't want to be victim to this system that they distrust, right? And so, so by us being dismissive and instead of in empathetically engaging with it, we're losing them and we're losing them to people, to charlatans that are just going to charge them three hundred bucks an hour and then sell them three hundred dollars worth of supplements every month, and then those things are going to do whatever they do, which I, I can argue that they do mostly bad, right? and 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 interact with your medicine and and that's where people are at so yeah i don't know how much i don't know how much time we have left but i, I definitely like i feel like i have some tips for practitioners oh yeah and Let's... and because we're gonna because we're gonna share this 
on my podcast too. I want to make sure that the patients understand like the, you know, these same tips apply obviously to them. Right. Yeah. So. And let's hop into some of that. We've kind of proven without going into more and more granular detail, how, how bias and off this, this video put out by Breitbart is with America's quote unquote frontline doctors. So why don't you hop into some of the advice that people can use for recognizing stuff like this, that that will help people. Sure. I mean, actually one of the things I was just thinking, as you said, that is like, so the, the new real estate online is uh, search. So like you want your, your business to show up first. So you, you do what's called search engine optimization. So the idea of calling something America's frontline doctors, like it, it's symbolic, uh, but it also is very SEO friendly. So it's a yeah. way to get your stuff to the top, especially during uh, a pandemic. But yeah, so again, like this whole thing has been, been a hot mess. So, um, all right. So we want to help our people who distrust institutions. We want to engage, right? So I have six tips, okay? So don't resist, get informed, build bias, teach people how to vet information, teach trust thresholds and defer away. So let's go through those, all right? Okay. So the first thing is don't resist, right? So bad stuff like this is sexy to them. And it's going to travel with less resistance than your boring ass good information, right? <laughs> yeah. So you can talk all day and like, you know, like going through and discrediting her. It doesn't matter <laughs> because, because she's already out there, right? So it's, it's a waste of time. So if you're, if you're given the facts and figures, you've already lost. People don't care. They love stories and they love juicy gossip even more. Yep. So therefore... Have the facts to refute it, but you have to come up with a way to make boring stuff sexy. So this is my nutrition advice, right? The tr every freaking six months, I'm swatting away a new trendy <laughs> nutritional thing, right? It's just, but eat less food that's healthier. That's it, right? Like eat healthy food and eat less of it. That's that's nutrition 101, right? Yeah. And and like, but I'm constantly going after these sexy trends. So if you resist the idea that these things will travel better than your boring stuff, then you're already lost. So you have to accept that, that people are going to believe this nonsense and they're going to believe it easier than your nonsense. So you got to come up with a way to make boring stuff sexy. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> the second thing is you want to get informed on all the wild stuff that's out there. So the, the way that I started to win with my practice, my physical practice was when people would come in and talk about things that are scientifically like la la land, like homeopathy, for example, <laughs> I, I would, I would learn all about it. What does it mean? Right. And like, what are the arguments for and against it? Right. And I would just become more engaged with that. So that way I could come up with the right ways to educate people. So with homeopathy, I don't even talk about the science anymore because that violates Fact number one, what I tell people is, well, there's no physical way for me to prove it is what it is. And that's what I do. I do quality. I can't prove to you that it's this thing or the other thing. And if we look at quality results, we, we've seen belladonna in those kids like calm pills, right? We've seen all yeah. the times that there's been contaminants. So I said, I don't sell these products, not for the science, which could potentially like cause some tension and some resistance with them. I don't sell it because of quality. Right. So so I think like, you know, they say it all the time. The best the people that know the the uh, the Bible, the best are like really like 
the the a-hole atheists, the ones that want to prove all their points, right? So they know the, every word of every page of that Bible because they're constantly refuting and rebuking it. So I think it's important that people do that. People learn about this stuff and 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 don't avoid it, but engage with it. The the third thing is is that what you need to teach people is to not have bias against the system, have bias against any group that wants you to build bias against the system, right? Mm -hmm. it, it, uh, that has changed everything for me. If I, I, when I started talking about social media, I was talking about the facts and figures about like all the stuff that it does. But when I started to say, there's Russian disinformation cha uh, campaigns, you know, go to the, the, the belief systems and, and like the, the threats, the real issues there, like you're being manipulated to distrust our own systems and that's the end result and that helps people a lot that helps people understand because like oh okay so so i don't just i distrust the system and part of that is from real evidence but then the amplification is coming from a very malicious place right the the fourth thing i want people to do is to teach people how to vet information this is probably the most important part and i came up with a really good analogy actually i didn't come up with it i had a guest on my podcast a phd researcher who like writes lots of stuff for like you know the the web space and he said that this is what i teach people is that when a story comes out in the scientific media don't think of it as a story okay don't think of the trial being a full story think of it as a word or a sentence and it's our job as scientists and practitioners to put those words into sentences, which then fit into a story. So when we hear these new articles or like, oh, hydroxychloroquine is good, that's not the whole story. That's just one sentence. What is the total story? And help people build those stories. And the unfortunate part is that the boring stories that we all know, again, eat less unhealthy food, eat more healthy food, eat less calories. That's the most complete story that we have. So when we hear ketogenic diet or intermittent fasting, those are sentences made and we, they might not even fit into the whole story. Right. Mm -hmm. So helping people vet this information, it's, it's super important. Yeah. Trust thresholds. This is another piece that I talk about all the time. So if you're going to not trust the system, right, you don't trust the CDC. OK, why? OK, so it's corrupt. There's financial stuff. There's political stuff. Well, did you run out of your litmus paper when pandemic came out, right? So <laughs> why, why is it that you can say all, and this is the grasping at straws things that I was talking about before. Why is it that you don't trust the CDC, but this rent-a-cop doctor that's, that's showing up on freaking YouTube is all of a sudden meeting your standards? So I say, be consistent, but then sometimes I'll say you're being hypocritical, right? So, so there's obvious bias in all of this financial bias here, right? So they want to yeah. sell their stuff. There's the political bias into all of it. So use that. And then I say defer away, right? So defer away from the institution and look the patient in the eye and say, okay, you don't trust the system. Do you trust me? Right. And I, I want people to, to, to do that because pharmacists, especially we're in the community, right? Our biggest role here is to have that face-to-face -face conversation. Don't don't believe all that. I have the training. I will vet this for you. And I I'm trustworthy and I want our pharmacists to be trustworthy. Right. Don't don't do the, the trendy supplement nonsense and just sell whatever is popular. Have standards and hold to them. Be trustworthy for the people. So that way they can instead of having trust in these institutions, which it's going to be a hard sell for a lot of people, they can at least have trust in a practitioner. Right. Yeah. And, and, and get that back for pharmacists, you know. All right. So those are my six tips. I, I highly encourage people to go back and listen to the last 10 minutes of this podcast again, because I think especially one in six 
are like yes. my favorite ones for how to deal with this in a professional and consistent manner for your patients. Um, hey, before I let you go, Neil, I got two mm-hmm. questions I ask everyone who comes on here. I didn't really <laughs> prep you with this one a whole lot, but I'm sure you've, you've heard it before. Um, okay. If you could change one thing about pharmacy, not law related, what would it be? Uh, the fact that farm, um, so it's, it's all one concept. So we don't get paid. That's, that's what I would change, but I wouldn't change it from a, um, from a, uh, like reimbursement structure. I would change it from a unification of the voice of pharmacy. We have not gathered together as a single group of hospital pharmacists and clinical pharmacists and retail pharmacists and said, we're valuable. So pay us a flat dispensing fee that's commensurate with our abilities. Pay us to be in the hospital to help you reduce hospitalizations and day spent and, and, and costs and all of this stuff. We are valuable members of the healthcare uh, team. So that's what I would change is that we would all come together as one voice and say that loudly for the past 50 years. That's what I would have changed. I, I could not agree with that one a whole lot more. Um, <laughs> uh, the other thing uh, that I always ask everyone is, if you could change one law about pharmacy, now I know you're in New York who's pretty strict with some stuff, so it could be different yeah. there. If you could change one law about pharmacy, federal, federal or state, what would it be? I think that the law that needs to change the most, that would be the most impactful, would probably be uh, the any. if I could change or can I implement a new one? I got, I got, whatever I you want. Whatever I want to do, some, some legal change. All right, so this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to say that pharmacists, should have the ability to influence and change um, therapies. Okay, so I, I believe, prescribing yeah. to some extent. Prescribing to some extent. When I was at the VA, we could do that, right? We could make changes to regimens within a protocol. And I believe like, if we had the ability to do that for one thing, we could easily expand that throughout the years and then show these people how freaking valuable we are. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. And I all the time I'm faxing doctors or calling them trying to get something stupid yeah. switched to like, you know, Two, two tablets of a Torvastatin 40 to one of 80 or something silly. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Or just like, hey, this person's not taking this medicine and you just increased it. And <laughs> like you didn't have that conversation because they don't trust you. So they just lie to you. So uh, yeah. let's not change that. You know, that kind of a thing. That, so. happens, that happens way more often than I care to admit. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, but hey, Neil, you've been an awesome guest. I appreciate your insight looking at this from kind of a different side of the pharmacy counter. Um, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Eric. Hey, and listeners, I uh, hope you appreciate this kind of a different discussion on this topic. I kind of wanted to do it like this. So this way we're not just point by point, as Neil said, the boring way, refuting all these people who are on the basically the second coming of the pandemic video with this American frontline doctors. But as always, thanks for listening to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, your prescription for pharmacy and politics.